Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Hi, I'm Cameron Harold. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Over the last 189 episodes, I've interviewed several COOs and seconds in command who have shared their experiences working directly under the CEO. We've explored their roles and how they set the standards in the workplace with their staff, as well as establishing their ideal culture. Today, I want to share highlights of several podcasts that I've been featured on. These highlights include valuable insights on entrepreneurship, establishing real and obtainable goals, and how to have the most productive meetings. I hope you enjoy today's episode. My conversation with Caramer and Harold was amazing. This soundbite sums it all up. But one of your keynotes, leadership at 100 miles an hour, you talk about these are the secrets that you need to double the size of your companies and increase profits. But I'm curious because there's also a mindset, or maybe it's the wrong one. Slow, steady, consistent quality will win the race. There's no shortcut to success. Now, Go there. Tell me what you think. That sounds horrible to me. (laughs) Well, there is shortcuts to success. Like the answer is in the back of every textbook and Google gives you the answer and you could get seven people to all write the exam together. Like there is a better way, a faster way, but I don't believe that slow and steady. I believe that momentum creates momentum. I believe that instead of minimum viable product, it's minimum viable everything. That the reality is that it's about getting it done and out the door because that momentum will create momentum. Here's something really interesting for everybody smart who's listening right now. Everyone who's worked really hard in university or high school to get the A, to get the 4.0, I didn't even realize until recently there was a 4.2. I had no idea. But no one's ever asked for your GPA since. No one has ever asked for your transcript of your university grades. No one's ever given a shit whether you got a B or a C or an A. So the reality is, okay is good enough. Unless you're flying planes or doing brain surgery, no one needs perfect. It doesn't have to be the perfect email. It doesn't have to be the perfect system. It doesn't have to be the perfect slide deck. It doesn't have to be the, because you can always make something a little more perfect, right? So growth for me comes with alignment with vision, alignment with core values and obsession about good people, giving people the tools to do their job. And then I've always believed that the leader's core job is to grow people. It's even the course that I launched is called Invest in Your Leaders. And the whole idea of investing in your leaders is giving them the skills to do their job. So the 12 modules of the course are situational leadership, coaching, delegation, time management, project management, conflict management, effective meetings, interviewing, hiring and onboarding, like the skills that every leader needs that we don't teach them. And then we wonder, why are we running shitty meetings while we've never trained them? Or why can't people get their email done? Because we've never trained them. Or how come they don't deal with conflict well? Because we've never trained them. We teach them how to do the functional aspects of their job, but we don't teach them the executive functioning skills. Until you're in a big company like a Xerox or a Starbucks or a GE, where they have leadership teams and HR departments. But most of the companies with the 30 employees to 300 employees have no development training to grow their people. So I believe that hyper growth comes from really growing the skill set and capacity of our people so that they can do more. And then if we grow their confidence 
at the same time as we grow their skills, cheer them on, praise them, find areas they've done well in, celebrate successes, that energy fuels them to do more and take more and try more. I'm curious, how did you land on, however, COO versus CEO? So it's interesting. Everyone in the world is targeting CEOs. So there was a bit of a blue ocean with the COOs. I had been a COO three times where I was the second in command for this collision repair chain. I was effectively second in command for this house painting business and running the West Coast of the US. And I was also the second in command for 1-800-GOT-JUNK and for the private currency company for a while when I was acting as president reporting to their CEO. So I've been in that second in command role in these entrepreneurial organizations. And I saw there was a missing link there. In a lot of worlds, we're trying to teach the entrepreneur how to do stuff when they're not capable of doing it. They're capable of knowing what it has to get done, but the COO is capable of actually getting it done. And then three of my clients that I was coaching, their COOs wanted to get together and talk about the ideas. When you talk to an entrepreneur about recruiting, they're like, we got to get all the right people on the bus. And they feel like that was a discussion about recruiting. That's like a tagline from good to great. But when you talk to a COO about recruiting, they could spend two days dissecting top grading and dissecting the interview process and dissecting reference checks and scorecards. And so I just saw that need for them. And we started the organization. We've now got about 145 members from 17 countries around the world. Minimum criteria, you have to do at least 5 million in revenue just to join. We've actually added nine new members in the last nine days. So we're just actually hitting a bit of an inflection point now in our growth. So you're developing the COO, the second in command. What are those challenges or opportunities for the COO for which your services and insights can move them ahead? So one of the core ones is understanding the dynamic of the CEO-COO relationship. Almost like the men are from Mars, women are from Venus book that got so powerful where men finally understood women and women finally started to understand men. And we realized that men aren't just hairy versions of women. We're different animals, and we think differently. We approach things differently. Well, CEOs and COOs approach companies in a very different way. So it's understanding that personality profile of the CEO. It's understanding their DNA. It's understanding how to communicate in the way that they can hear. It's understanding how to ask from them what you need in a way that they can deliver that to you. It's understanding how to build trust. So it's really building that high-functioning team is probably the first thing that we focus on. The second one is really educating the CEO what needs to happen in the company so they know what needs to happen, but letting them know they don't have to worry about how to do it, that the COO will take over to make sure that the team knows how to do it. Almost like if we were building a home. As the homeowner, as the CEO, I know what I want to build, but I don't have to know how to do electrical, how to do plumbing, how to do foundation work, how to do drywall. I just need to know that that has to happen. Well, the CEOs are often trying to do the wrong stuff. So for the COOs, we're trying to grow them so they have the skill set and the capacity and can build trust. And then the third area is really how to have the tough discussions with the CEO that no one else is often willing to have. It's often the emperor's new suit where no one's willing to tell the king that he's naked. And someone needs to tell the CEO that there's a problem in a confidential environment behind the scenes where we don't make them look bad where we can tell them, look, you're doing something that's coming off the wrong way, or you're frustrating people, or and it's doing it in a very trusted way where you make them look good. So the COO's job is to make the CEO look good. 
And the CEO's job behind the scenes is to make sure that people still like the COO who's often rolling up the tough decisions. So we spend a lot of time around those types of areas. You know, those are all incredibly powerful ways of building a business. And when you stack them one on top of the other, the way you did, you're bound to grow and you're bound to make progress. My favorite of all the things you talked about, I have two. My favorite is culture. My second is PR. And the reason I like PR so much is because I built my own business on PR, but I didn't have a vision that PR was important. I had an economic problem. <laughs> PR was free. <laughs> right. Well, PR was free for us too. We didn't spend any money on advertising for the first three years. We just had our big trucks driving around and then we leveraged the press. And one thing I know about the media is every day they wake up wondering what the heck they're going to talk about. And if you give them some good content, they'll write about you or they'll cover you or they'll interview you. And it scales. And the other thing is no one really believes advertising. They didn't believe it 16 years ago. They're not believing it today, but they still honor what the traditional press is covering. So there's some real, all this talk about fake news. Um, but the reality mm. is news is news and PR is free. That's for sure. And again, you know, we were forced into a situation where we blew our entire budget on some stupid ads that didn't work. And then from there, all we had left was PR. So we doubled down and went all in. And for us, that turned out to be the magic that brought us to life, particularly in the minds of our ideal clients. So it was a great strategy then as it is now. The other thing that I loved about what you said is culture. And I think I bet I have a different viewpoint of culture than you. Can you tell me yours and how deliberately did you create culture in that environment? Sure. I want to underscore something that's really critical. If a company's not making enough money, culture and PR won't help them. True. I think so many businesses don't get the proper financial oversight in the early days when they're set in. You don't have to have a full-time CFO. But have someone run your numbers and run your models and really poke holes in it and show you what you need to be charging. And if you can't charge it or like if you're opening up a muffin store and you realize you need to sell like 7,000 muffins a month to make money, you really got to wonder whether it's going to happen or not. Like, so I think a lot of people just fall in love with their business and fall in love with the culture and brand and, and the press will talk about you. But if you're not making any money, you're never going to make money. And I think you really, really, really have. And I've just seen so many businesses fail that way. So let me answer the culture question, though. Mm -hmm. Culture for me starts with alignment with the CEO's vision. As long as every employee understands where we're going and what we're building together and can make a lot of the same decisions based on the same gut level intuition the CEO has, that's where it starts. Secondly, culture is about really having the true A players on the bus and getting rid of the bad people, kind of getting the cultural cancers out of your company, almost like you would get a cancerous tumor out of your body. You can only have the really good people in your company driving the business forward. So then you don't have to hold people accountable and manage them. You hire people that manage themselves and they're aligned with that shared vision, that vivid vision that we'll talk about. The third thing is you really have to have strong communication protocols in place so that people are communicating clearly and respectfully and quickly internally. That's lateral communication, also top-down communication and bottom-up communication, and then also communication out to your clients and suppliers and your outward market. And then the fourth is the space, right? Giving people an environment and the technology tools to be able to really grow and scale the company. Culture is not the free perks. It's not the free stuff. It's not the massage and the free lunch and the, the Wii room. It's really all about the vision, the people, communication protocols, and the space and technology tools to do their job. 
Yes, that's a great formula. I love that. I'd like to add one other thing to what you said. Oh, and I miss core values. And you have to be able to live and obsess about your core values and fire people who break them. Sorry, but go ahead. Great. And that's part of what I was about to say. So what I do when I install culture into the companies that I work with, when I build certification programs, is what we call it the code of ethics. And the code of ethics, you might think of as restrictive, but it's not. It basically says exactly what you can and cannot do and be right or wrong. So like, for example, you cannot take the company's intellectual property and sell it to somebody else or put it on your website. These are the sort of things that I'm talking about. And when you create this group of boundaries, it's where real freedom exists. Because now when the CEO's why is fully understood and can be translated down to everybody in the organization from the lowest to the highest person, and they understand their boundaries, and it's a great place that communication is encouraged. And we would encourage make mistakes, but when you do, also make solutions. And that helped the culture evolve into a place where no one was afraid of making mistakes as long as they weren't going to crash the company. Yeah. I call it a no-blame environment. And then we also have the Michael Gerber idea of the people don't fail, systems fail. So you're always looking for the broken system or the missing system to fix, not blaming a person. People don't show up in the morning wanting to mess things up. They're trying to do the right thing, but they make mistakes. Maybe it's because they're carrying too many balls. Maybe it's because the system wasn't in place for them to follow, but no one's intentionally making a mistake. So find the system or that that's broken or needs to be fixed. Great, great tip. And then create that no-blame environment so people are okay with putting their hands up saying something's broken because they know no one's going to get in trouble for it. I'm so excited to have you. I was actually chatting, oh my gosh, this is probably well over a year ago now, chatting with my friend Azul and I was listening, I believe I was listening to the How I Built This Podcast when I heard the story about 1-800-GOT-JUNK and how mm. one, sure. um, I believe it was a feature in Fortune Magazine how one feature in Fortune magazine like blew up the business. And then I was talking to Azul about it and he was like, hey, I know a guy named Cameron Harold who you should talk to about this. And then that's how he made the introduction. So am I right? Was it the How I Built This podcast where I heard that story? Yeah, yeah. Brian, was the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, was on with Guy Raz. Guy and I hung out together at the TED conference two years ago. Um, and yeah, this, it was actually Fortune Small Business. It was the print edition of the magazine. And uh, Justin Martin was the the journalist, the writer who came out and spent a full day with us and wrote a really strong two-page article uh, with photos about 1-800-GOT-JUNK and covered Brian and I really extensively in the article. Funny story, that article, um, that was in 2003 or 2004, um, Simon Sinek heard about us through that article, called me and asked if he could come for lunch. And I said, sure. And I said, uh, uh, do you want directions? And he goes, no, no, I'm just, I'm coming from the airport. And I said, oh, where, are you out of town? He said, no, I live in New York. And I said, well, you just said, said you're flying from New York or you're coming for lunch. He goes, yeah, I'm going to fly up from New York. I'll come for lunch and then I'll take the red eye back to New York. And I'm like, for real? And he goes, yeah, I just need to find out if you guys are a real company or not. So Simon Sinek, the, the, you know, the number three Ted talk of all time, that's how he and I met was he, and this was way before anyone in the world had heard of Simon. He and his business partner owned a three person ad agency and uh, he was four or five years before writing his book, Start With Why. But that that article that Justin wrote um, caught the attention of um, 
the, the mass media. It caught the attention of Oprah. Um, it brought us into CNBC Squawk Box. And I think over a six and a half year period that I was the chief operating officer, we landed 5,200 individual unique stories about our company. So that was one of the tipping point stories for sure. And after that article, you guys got so busy, you had to like unplug the phones because they were literally ringing off the hook. Well, there's there's some truth to that, but there's also some art behind that. So we understood what we called, I, I taught the company something called the reverse sell. The reverse sell is something I learned at a group called College Pro Painters, where if you're selling a franchise, if you put turn on the pressure too hard, if you're too keen, if you're too energetic, you'll turn away the prospect. So what you want to do is get the prospect to be selling you the whole time on why they're good enough. So what we did in terms of unplugging the phone was we just created urgency. So we taught everyone in our franchise sales group to leave a message that said, hey, we've just been covered in the media this week. Sorry, we're really, really busy. Please leave your name and phone number and we'll call you right back. But that message was on the voicemail for years. So yeah, we turned the phones off, but we did it very strategically, not truly because the media overwhelmed us. The second part of that story though is it did kind of overwhelm us, but we had a, um, a system in place called a no faster than number where we decided how fast we could possibly grow without breaking, like what kind of quantum leap um, in terms of growth could we go without breaking. And at the time, we were doing about four new franchises per month, and we realized that the fastest we could do was 16. <clears throat> so we created systems to be able to interview, recruit, um, offer, train, and onboard 16 new franchises a month without breaking. And so I think that that was probably the tipping point of us being able to really accelerate our growth as well. Okay, I am obsessed with what you just said because nobody gets this. And I would say probably about 90% of PR agencies also do not get this. And I'm speaking from the right. journalism side. Like I was getting pitches all day, every day for 10 years as a TV reporter. And I preach to my audience, like stop trying to promote yourself. It is not the media's job to give you a free no. commercial. And so many business right. owners do that. So many PR agencies do that. So how did you learn this? Well, again, I learned it at a group called College Pro Painters, which went on to be the, the world's largest house painting company. I hired Kimball Musk to work for me, Elon's brother, back in 1993. Um, so I, I just got trained at a very young age, and I was pretty naive and grew up in a small city that I just thought, okay, this will work anywhere. And sure enough, it did. Um, when Brian and I met 14 years later, um, he was kind of cold calling with the media as well in a small way in Vancouver. And he was getting some success with it. So when, you know, you, it was kind of like nitroglycerin when you took his little expertise in the Vancouver market and my expertise working it in multiple countries already, um, and you kind of poured gas on that fire, it just lit up. And we understood how to craft that story. And we really, I also understood in the very early days, when I came into 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I came in with three core focuses in that first year. The first one was we had to, to um, really increase our revenue so that we could make money and our franchisees could make money. So we took our full load of a truck from $338 a full load to $458 a full load overnight. And everyone in the company was terrified. And I'm like, look, we're either going to go bankrupt because we don't make money or we're going to go bankrupt because we're charging too much. I'd rather try to charge too much and then deliver. And sure enough, it worked. Second thing was <clears throat> to turn the company into a cult and create a culture that was so strong we would become a magnet for great talent because we would always need really great employees to scale. And the third was to be the first in the media. And I said, if we could own the press, then we would own the minds of the consumer because they would always believe what the media said about us. They would never believe our marketing or advertising. 
And if we could be the leaders in every market in the media, none of our competitors would ever get a toehold because we'd always be mentioned even in the articles that were about them. So those were one of our three core focuses was getting publicity. I love that. And we just did it. You know? So we, we would pick up the phone and call journalists and we'd give them stories. And it, it, it evolved from in the first six months, me doing it, where I would do probably 10 hours a week as one of my core roles as the chief operating officer pitching the media. And then I hired a guy who worked for us in the trucks um, and taught him how to do PR. He'd never had any PR experience whatsoever. He went on to land about 600 stories about our company, including Oprah. He got us on the Oprah show. And then we finally built out the PR team to six full-time in-house PR people and a PR admin. And none of them had any PR experience. We would never hire anyone with a PR background. No, I am with you on that 100%. They they just want to write news wires and press releases and they don't get it. So what we hired was a lot. We actually loved women that were 25, 26 years old that loved to sell and would love to cold call and that were great on the phone, and they could pick up the phone and pound out calls all day and build connection with writers. And then we taught them how the product was the story and how to sell that product. And I think the biggest shift that people will see as they get into the Vivid Vision, which I want to ask you about here, is the amount of detail that's involved in this. And so can you paint the picture for us of what is different about a Vivid Vision versus that one or two page mission statement or sentence that might go up on a board? Sure. So the difference between a vivid vision and a vision statement, the vision statement is that one sentence statement. The vivid vision ends up becoming a four or five page written document that describes the entire company or business area in complete detail three years from today. So you'd be leaning out to December 31st, three years from now, describing, let's say the entire company. So the way I teach people to do it, if you were describing your entire organization would be describe every area of your org chart three years from now and maybe put three or four bullet points down about each area. So describe marketing and IT, finance, operations, sales, customer service, and kind of put three or four bullet points down around each area. And then you describe your culture, your meeting rhythms, the metrics and KPIs and dashboards you use, how the leadership team works. You put down comments around what the customers are saying about you, what your employees are saying about you, just like every almost as if you were standing in your company walking around three years from now and you could describe what you see. You're not really sure how it happened because you were almost transported into the future, but you can describe what it is it looks like and feels like. And the key when you get that kind of that first rough draft of the Vivid Vision done, maybe a three to four page rough draft, you then give it to a writer or a copywriter who can really make it polished and pop off the page. And then you just add some graphic design elements to it to really make it feel like the rest of your brand. And that's what starts to align people because then everyone can see what you can see. Why three years as the time frame? It seemed to be about the right amount of point to provide enough of a dream, enough of a push, enough excitement and energy that's different from today, but not so far out there that it was just kind of too far out, like just too far to really wrap your head around. You know, five years seemed to almost just be too far out there that, that people didn't see any urgency or, or, um, maybe it was too different from today. And then, you know, like the 10 or 20 or 50 year BHAGs were just impossible for people to get excited about. You know, there's, there's a different tool with a big, hairy, audacious goal, but to really describe something, um, it needs to be achievable in the people's minds, you know, and, and you want the employees to see that they could be a part of making some of these sentences of the vivid vision come true. This is great because this is one of the questions I get a lot from our audience. It's like, how do I actually do this? I want to see if I can get my brain around just the logistics of this. 
so you mentioned it's, it's you know it's four to five pages. How does that how does that show up? What what do you do to generate that? Is it one person sitting in a room writing this, and and who is that person? And how does that come together? Yeah, so ideally it is the leader of the company who's writing the vivid vision for the company. And then if you want to trickle that down to have individual ones for each business area or for some business areas, it would be the leader of that business group. Let's say the VP of marketing might do one for the marketing team. And it's the the leader of the company or the leader of the group is writing it independently and then getting buy-in from their team. And you might find that, you know, I, I coached a company on this years ago and the CEO took all of his 85 employees off site for the day and read out his vivid vision for what his company looked like three years in the future. And he turned to the team after reading it and he said, you know, about 15% of you hate what you just heard. And he said, but that's okay because you now know what the company looks like and you know it's the right time for you to quit. But 85% of you are probably really excited about what the company looks like in the future, which means now you know exactly how you can help make it come true. And he was right. About six weeks later, 15% of the company had quit. And then two years later, he ranked as the number two company in his province to work for. Well, that's interesting because I I noticed that one of the things you teach is that when you articulate a vivid vision, the goal isn't necessarily to get something that everyone in the organization buys into right away. Um, That a little bit of pushback is probably a good sign that you've created something that is powerful. Yeah, it's the, the key again is to get that um, almost like a magnet approach. You want to write the vivid vision in a way that it really magnetizes and pulls people toward you. In fact, you're going to be sharing a copy of the vivid vision with all potential employees, potential customers, potential suppliers, as well as your current employees, current suppliers and current customers. You know, you really want to pull people towards the organization. And if it's written in such a watered down way that it's trying to please everyone, it ends up pleasing no one. Got it. So I'm curious too, what precedes the getting into the room and writing it. So if you are the owner of the business or the uh, leader of the division, uh, prior to actually sitting down and starting to do that draft, what kind of thinking, conversations, listening should be happening that would inform what's going to go into those four to five pages? And it's funny that you said sitting in a room to do it because I actually want people to get out of the room, get out of the office, get out of their of their boardrooms and go somewhere where they're inspired, somewhere around nature with no laptops, no iPads, no phones and go with a notepad and a pen and just start mind mapping and dreaming about what the company looks and feels like. By the way, my, I have a book on Vivid Vision that talks about how to create the Vivid Vision concept, but it also talks about how to create one for your personal life or for your family. So the same principles, um, you know, in terms of driving towards a goal apply, but you have to get out of the office to write one and just let your mind drift. Start by doing the mind map and jotting down a bunch of ideas. And if you're somewhere around nature, somewhere that you're inspired, or if it's in the middle of winter somewhere, you know, I've gone to big ski lodges and sat, you know, by big, huge fireplaces or go to big, beautiful hotels and sit in the, you know, a lobby area by a fireplace in a big comfy leather chair and just let my mind drift and start, start dreaming, start writing down the ideas. Do you still manage your own email? No, she goes into my inbox and she goes through everything. And then um, I will respond to some emails on my own, but basically I am like, uh, I'm like a baby with her. She'll do screen share with me and we'll go through email together. And then if there's an issue that takes me more than two minutes, then she'll, she'll follow up on it as I move on to the next email. Right. So she'll, she'll, she'll triage a lot of it for you then as well. 
Yeah. Um, I'll give you another system called Inbox Zero that I use as well that'll help you and her to even get a little bit more of that off your plate. So when, when it comes down to hiring a second in command, the first area that I would actually start is you writing a vivid vision for your company. So it's really you leaning out three years and describing your entire company in its finished state. Um, it's, it's what we covered in chapter one of Double Double and my new book coming out in, on Amazon soon is called Vivid Vision. But it codifies the idea of taking the vision you have in your mind for your company, writing out a four or five page description of what your company looks like three years from now, so that then you can hand it to your team and to your COO that we're going to help you hire, who can then help reverse engineer that. But they need to really see the entire picture of what your company looks like, acts like and feels like three years from now. You know what the customers are saying about you, what your guests are saying about you, what your sponsors and suppliers say about you. They, you have to describe your marketing and your IT and your systems and processes all as if it's completed. And then they can figure out how to reverse engineer that. When you're looking to hire a second in command, it really has to be a true yin and yang relationship for you. So you've got to take a look at the stuff that's on your plate that you love to do, that you get energized from, that you're really, really good at. The stuff that you don't want to give up, you know, the stuff that you do for free except your kids have to eat, you keep that. And then everything else you're going to delegate. When you come up with a list of all that other stuff, that's going to start to describe what that COO looks and feels like for your company. But it's very different for every company. You know, I interviewed a COO this morning for my podcast, The Chief Behind the Chief. And, and this COO actually runs finance and IT and engineering. And I interviewed another COO recently, Harley Finkelstein from Shopify, and Harley doesn't run finance at all. He doesn't run engineering, that's under Tobias. But Harley's very sales and marketing and culture and operations and biz dev. So your COO is gonna be the perfect complement to the stuff you love, and he'll be able to take, or she'll be able to take the stuff you suck at and the stuff that you don't love. So that's the first area is figuring out what you want to get off your plate. Um, what were your grades like in school? Were you, you were a really good student, I'm guessing? Um, if you hear me banging away, it's because I take notes a lot and I'm trying to hit mute on it. Um, right. I was a good student in some places and not in others. So anything that had to do with chemistry, science, I didn't uh, do well in. Anything that was math related or later on business related in college, I, I just excelled at and loved it. So straight A's or, or solid B's? Uh, in those areas, straight A's. In those, uh, and I would have been disappointed if I had a, a B plus in the areas okay. like um, no, that's uh, all chemistry. I, that's all Sorry? So that's, that I would have been disappointed had I not gotten a straight A is part of, you, uh, part of what makes you really good, but it's also, it's also a bit of your Achilles heel. Why? And I heard it earlier. It's like, I want them to do it my way. No, what I really mean is I want them to have systems you're looking an awful lot for perfection. So as an example, if you could just get your executive assistant to get all of your guests a microphone, she knows the, the, the part, she sends it out, it goes off Amazon, they plug it in and 65, 70% of them use it. For me, that's a straight A. But for you, that would be an abysmal failure because you're only going to be satisfied if 100% of your guests use it 100% you know of the what? time. You know what? You're absolutely right. I, I wouldn't – when you first said it, I disagreed with you. And then when you actually put a number to it, I said 65. This is just – it would be awful. I'm buying 100% and 65 are using it. 65 for me would be one of the most kick-ass – I don't know if you can see my university transcript. <laughs> but uh <-huh. laughs> but – um, it's bad. It's B, F, C minus, C minus, C, D minus, D minus, and that just continues all the way to fourth year. I would think of you as an A, like more, more of an A plus student than I am. 
No, not at all. I was always a C. I was 62% in high school, 62% in college, but I realized that no one was ever going to look at my transcript, so it didn't matter. So I became president of my fraternity. I was on the university ski team. I was doing student government. Um, I was running a business. I had 12 employees when I was in second year university. So I was very active and engaged in everything else. And then school was kind of, yeah, I'll get that. And I think if you can bring a bit of that into your company, you win. I was coaching a CEO the other day. He'll do six million in revenue this year out of his dorm room at Cambridge. He's in third year school at Cambridge, made two million in profit, and he's he he was wanting to quit. I'm like, you can't quit. If you're at Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, and Yale, you stay in school, you finish. But I want you to not go after a 4.0. Be okay with getting a 2.8 for the first time in your life. Call mom and dad and say, look, I'm going to get a 70% average and I'm gonna make three million in profit in my last year. They'll be happy. And I think for you, it's a bit of the same thing. You, you, If you can move towards momentum creating momentum and not perfection creating momentum. You know, no one ever said perfect creates momentum. So just getting microphones out the door to the guests will wow them, it'll impress them, it'll be better sound quality. And if 70% of your podcasts are better, that's better. It, it's fascinating because, you know, we think of, as I said, we think of a monarchy as, as an absolute rule. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I know that you're about flipping that, that pyramid upside down. And so it, it's a very well, interesting. Yeah, one of the things that I worked with them on was really actually caring about their core values. And I said, you can't walk around saying that you want to build a great country or a great group of businesses without actually giving a shit about your people. Like, you have to care about the core values, which means you have to live them. And I really pushed hard on that. And it was really confrontational because they weren't really ready to hear it. You know, they were, um, because it's a different world over there. Of course. So, but I'm like, no, you actually have to care. Like, you have to decide. You can't, you can't walk both sides. You can't say, I want to build a great company and still be a jerk, right? There's a lot of, a lot of people say, a lot of people practicing that though. Or they just don't, or they placate. Like Enron had core values. Enron's core values were in their, their marketing on their wall. They didn't live them. No, that's what I'm saying. There's a lot of people doing that. These are our values and we stand by them, except yeah. that we don't. You know, the the, uh, the the wireless carrier that I've worked with is Sprint. So I've done coaching with Marcelo Claret, who's the CEO of Sprint, and I also coached one of his second-in-commands. And he cares. Like, he obsesses about core values. He obsesses about the customer. He obsesses about cutting waste and getting rid of the bureaucracy and, and um, getting rid of the, all the private expense accounts. And he, he runs it like an entrepreneur, but he was an entrepreneur before he went in. Next and those are the great ones for me to work with are the companies who are completely aligned from the top to the bottom or from the bottom up. You know, the, 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 they don't see a difference. They're willing to roll up their sleeves and get dirty. Yeah, I love that too. So you just said something earlier. You said when you think about uh, about Brian from 1-800-GOT-JUNK, when you think about Joe uh, from Genius Network, when you think about Dave Asprey from Bulletproof, you said they they all obsess about it, right? They're all eat, sleep, live, breathe. I believe the most successful people in the world are obsessed, uh, and that's a that's a bad uh, bad rap in our world. But I think it's there's there's a truth is we're obsessed about what it is we're obsessed about, and that's what makes us successful. What is your obsession? What makes what are you obsessed about? I'm obsessed with helping entrepreneurs make their dreams happen. It's the reason I created the concept of the Vivid Vision and why I started the COO Alliance. Like, I, I was getting so tired of going to, there's a million groups for entrepreneurs. You know, you have YPO and EO and Vistage and Genius Network and Mastermind Talks and Maverick and GoFundance and Baby Bathwater and Davos and TED. And you got all these places where entrepreneurs hang out. Yeah. But there never, and there's places for marketers and engineers and lawyers, but there was never a place for the COO. 
Right. So I, I wanted to help the COO grow. So we started the COO Alliance to help the entrepreneur, but it's always helping the entrepreneur. At the end of the day, I'm obsessed about helping entrepreneurs. I would do it for free, except my kids have to eat. <laughs> and you need a place to stay if you have a flood. There you go, yeah. But the, the flip side of that is I think they're also obsessed with other activities besides work. I think the most successful, the truly successful, maybe, you know, like like even the Elon Musks who are obsessed with business still have these outlets of, like Burning Man, right? They still have these other obsessions in their life where they disconnect right. uh, or they connect with people and friends. And, and I think that's kind of consistent as well. Like Joe is obsessed with health and obsessed with um, stopping addiction and obsessed with um, with friends and, 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 you know, Dave Asprey completely geeks out on biohacking and, yep. you know, science of the body. Um, and Brian just, uh, you know, family and friends and, you know, all of his hobbies. So you talk about vivid vision and you talk about purpose. How do you, how do you see those two things as separate and how do they come together? So I've got core purpose. As, if I look at the four Let's say, let's say you build a business like a jigsaw puzzle. Right. The, the front of the, of the box of the jigsaw puzzle is your vivid vision. It's the picture of where you're going. Yes. Four corners of your jigsaw puzzle are your core purpose, your core values, your BHAG, which is your big, hairy, audacious goal, and then the system or the reverse engineering system, the plan to create the vivid vision. Mm-hmm. Four values are the, are the things that you're willing to fight for and die for and the things you would fire people if they break. Yes. That test for me is you have to be willing to fire them maximum four or five core values for a company and they have to be short phrases not single words the core purpose is why we exist why do we exist as a company and my core purpose is helping entrepreneurs make their dreams happen you know apple's core purpose is to create insanely great products that challenge the status quo and change the human race so you have to understand why do we exist as a company not what do we do but why do we do it exactly right and then the big hairy audacious goal is that pursuit that you're after for the next 20 or 30 years that from the outside world, people don't think could happen, but inside you might think is possible. And it often doesn't have anything to do with what you do. Microsoft from 30 years ago was could have putting a computer on every desktop, and they didn't even make computers. No. Right? So their their BHAG was, was related to if they made this insanely great software, people would want to have a computer to use their software. Yeah. That's when you know you've nailed the BHAG. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.